Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Christ crucified looks like the height of foolishness. That's how it appears, but is actually the height of wisdom. It is foolish in worldly terms and always has been, right? Bleeding, naked, and paled men are not the heroes and role models the world is usually looking for, but in Christian terms, the cross embodies the very wisdom of God itself. All of it is there. That wisdom is His plan for the world, which will be accomplished and applied through the cross of Christ and in no other way, by no other means. This helps us begin to understand the profound differences there are between the Creator and His creatures and what we consider to be wise. Through the Holy Spirit, God has revealed to us His secret and hidden wisdom that is the key to all spiritual knowledge in Christ crucified. So let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for this passage. God, please help me to preach. Please speak through me. Please carry me along by Your Spirit. Please open all of our ears to hear and to understand. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 here. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Specifically, the crucifixion of Jesus highlights three contrasts between this age and the age to come, beginning in verse 6. The first is pretty obvious, isn't it? There's a huge difference between the wisdom of this age, which is immature and changeable, and the timeless wisdom of God, which is what Paul preaches. It is a wisdom Paul imparts, again, through preaching, to the mature, he says, in verse 6, those who believe in the wisdom of God. That's what it means to be mature, spiritually speaking. Wise human beings, or those who think themselves wise anyway, are wise often, but in very time-bound ways. The popular view of what makes for a good life or a successful life uh, changes significantly every few decades, doesn't it? Each generation overturns the general consensus of the previous generation on the most important things. Uh, and not just scientifically, but morally. What makes someone a wise person? What makes someone a good person? Changes with every generation. Changes every few decades. If you're appalled, for example, at some of the things that your great-grandparents believe, don't worry, your great-grandchildren will be appalled at some of the things you believe or we believe. Paul says that's what immaturity in this sense looks like. That's how the wisdom of the world is immature. It proves for all its confidence in its own Understanding that humanity is breathtakingly immature. For the most part, human beings are like little children in that we're continually drawn to new things, shiny new things. We tend to be captivated by what's right in front of us. We can only see that far. In Matthew 11, you remember Jesus like in Israel in his time to children sitting in the marketplace, crying because he didn't dance when they played the flute. He didn't weep when they played the dirge. Translation, we don't know what we want, but you always need to do what we want. But the wisdom of God is timeless. right? It's 
mature. It's unchanging and stable. It doesn't ebb or flow or wax and wane with the fashions of the day. It's unchangeable. Now, in verse 7, we learn that in the generations before Jesus came, that wisdom was hidden, but it was always there. It's been decreed before the ages for our glory. True wisdom in this world is the result of God's decree that the world would find meaning in Christ crucified. And it can only be known through Him. So, between the wisdom of this age and the secret and hidden wisdom of God, there's also the contrast now between the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away in verse 6 and the Lord of glory in verse 8. The rulers of this age, and Paul is probably thinking namely here of Caesar and Pilate and the Jewish high priests and maybe some others, were consumed by the wisdom of this age, which is why they killed Jesus. As rulers always are consumed with the wisdom of the age. Roman rulers were committed to military power and pride, worldly glory, the brutal suppression of anyone who got in their way. Israel's leaders had their own wisdom. It was built on self-righteousness through the law and pride, but also the desire for power and a place in the world. They were so consumed by worldly wisdom that they thought sacrificing Jesus was a price worth paying to protect their status quo. Which John 11, 47 through 53 makes clear, by the way. You read as much there. But they did not understand what God was doing at Calvary or could have been doing. That this was the very revelation of wisdom itself. The crucified man they were beholding. For if they had... They would not have crucified the Lord of glory in verse 8. They did that because they were foolish. So at the cross was the collision of two rulers and two wisdoms, right? Caesar's worldly wisdom of military power and pride and Israel's worldly wisdom of self-righteousness and pride collided with Christ's divine wisdom of humility and service and sacrifice. Now on that Friday... It looked like Rome and Israel were triumphant for a few hours that afternoon and a long weekend there. It looked like worldly wisdom was the right kind. The rulers of this age looked like they had won as they will usually look. But wisdom knows that what you can see is not what is necessarily true or real. Because by Sunday morning, things looked very different, right? The Lord had been vindicated, and so was the wisdom of God. God didn't need to parade His victories around like a desperate child when He knew that just in the quiet garden on resurrection morning, He knows all things are in His hand. Wisdom in this world comes from aligning ourselves with the One who made and sustained all things, no matter what losses we may take in the moment, as we saw in the Sermon on the Plain this morning. Verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The third contrast here relates to the quality of these two wisdoms. The wisdom and the rulers of this age are doomed. They're always in the process of passing away in verse 6. That's not only true historically, since all rulers eventually die. All worldly wisdom changes and moves on, etc., etc. It's also true eternally. If we view the insights and influencers of this age from the perspective of eternity, they're shockingly short-lived. 
the wisdom and rule of God will last forever. Verse 9 has been a source of comfort for believers for ages, and there is good reason to that. We, we generally read this text thinking it's describing eternity or heaven and the indescribable glory that we will no doubt experience there, and we will. It is certainly true that we'll, what we're going to see in eternity is far beyond what we can comprehend now, but the text that Paul quotes here from Isaiah 64, 4, is contemplating the revelation of God that has now been made known to us now in the person and work of Christ. The wisdom of God that's been revealed already to us in Him. Look at verse 10 again. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. We know them. We have them. So it's not talking about what we'll see in the future. It's talking about what we have now in Christ. God has now revealed the things no eye had previously seen, no ear had previously heard, and no heart had previously imagined. He's revealed those things to us through His Spirit. We are now participating in the age that is to come, which has been inaugurated with the death and resurrection of Jesus in Christ crucified for us. The secret and hidden wisdom of God that God has prepared for those who love Him has been revealed. We have the Holy Spirit who searches everything, even the depths of God. So the Spirit whom Jesus sent to us from the Father testifies to us about Him. That's John 15, 26. In Christ crucified for us at the cross is the revelation of more than we can see with just our eyes like the world sees wisdom, more than we can hear with just our ears like the world hears wisdom, and more than our hearts can even imagine. That's talking about what has been revealed to us at the cross in the person and work of Christ. What God has revealed by the crucifixion of Jesus is the sum total of all His wisdom and glory, and it's more than we can comprehend. And so God gives us His Spirit. This is very interesting here what Paul is doing. Before he even gets to the gifts of the Spirit in the church, later in chapters 12 and 14, He introduces, back here in chapter 2, the true essence and purpose of the Holy Spirit's work in the church in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing. Look at at verse 11. Pick it up there. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Talking about verse 9. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. As I alluded to a a moment ago, if, if you ask people which passage in 1 Corinthians was most focused on the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, I think most people would probably point to chapters 12 and 14 and concerning spiritual gifts like prophecy and languages, and which is all very intriguing and mysterious. So maybe that's why our minds turn there when we think about the activity of the Holy Spirit in Paul's letter and what he's up to in the church. But the Holy Spirit is mentioned more in this text, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, than he is in all of chapter 12, and twice as much as he's mentioned in chapter 14. And even more surprisingly, The work of the Holy Spirit is not described here where it's talking about Him the most in terms of gifts and service, 
even though they're very important, and the text will address them. He's talking about the Spirit here mainly as he introduces him to us in terms of revelation, knowledge, and discernment. That's really the essence of what the Holy Spirit is doing in and for the church, revealing the wisdom of God to us in Christ. That's revealed in full at the cross. At the cross, you learn everything. You learn everything. Paul is being very deliberate here. Remember, he's writing because he's concerned about all this division and the factions within the Corinthian church. So as Andrew Wilson comments, long before he even talks about the gifts, which he knew were another area of disagreement and division among the Corinthians, he wants to redefine their concept of the Spirit's activity and the shape of Christian spirituality. He wants them to see that the heart of the Holy Spirit's work is to bring the revelation of Jesus continually to the church. This is the wisdom we're most lacking and in most need of the Spirit's revealing work to be performed on us. It's that we don't get the wisdom of the cross as we've been granted the ability to have. We're always trying to move beyond the cross, aren't we? We're always trying to go somewhere else, somewhere allegedly deeper, supposedly more spiritual. Beloved, everything centers on the cross. Everything. You maybe heard it said, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Yes, absolutely. Mainly, Him hanging on the cross. If the revelation of Jesus becomes the focus of the church, since it is the focus of the Spirit's work in us, Paul is trying to convince them that will finally lead us away, as it would lead the Corinthians away from division and pride and lead them towards humility and unity as it would lead us. You need the Holy Spirit at work to reveal Christ and all that God has said through Him at the cross. The church needs that more than anything. That's what wisdom is. There's there's not a wisdom of God that exists apart from the cross of Christ. We get wisdom for life and for godliness and everything we need at the cross. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So good theology is a Spirit-led, Spirit-guided experience. What Through the use of the mind to comprehend wisdom. Right? It's, it's, it's such a dangerous... It always feels more spiritual to pretend that, that you, you mature apart from your mind. That like you just, you, you mature through these experiences. Or through your feelings. That, that's the people that are supposedly super mature as Christians. Oh, they don't need the church like others do. They don't need classes. They don't need learning. They just, they just sit and receive from the Spirit. Preachers are good at this. Trying to, to make you think that because we're so spiritual, we don't even need to study. We just preach what's on our heart. You don't ever want me to preach what's on my heart. You need me in this book, and I need to be in this book. Paul says, think over what I say, for the Spirit will give you understanding in everything, Timothy. That's, that's the way. The Spirit doesn't work through these kind of ethereal, emotional experiences. Beloved, He is centered on revealing the person and work of Christ to us at the cross. That's the key to everything. That's the key to maturity. It's the key to growth. It's the key to love and to unity. 
One commentator writes, we read the scriptures which the Spirit has inspired in the midst of the church whom the Spirit has filled in search of the Christ whom the Spirit reveals. Let me say that again. We read the scriptures which the Spirit has inspired in the midst of the church whom the Spirit has filled in search of the Christ whom the Spirit reveals. We study, we learn Christ. We want Christ. Verse 11 tells us that without the Holy Spirit doing that, we would have no access to the thoughts of God, no ability to discern His truth. We would end up with nothing but more of the Spirit of the world if we're left to ourselves. With the Holy Spirit, however, in verse 12, we might understand the things freely given us by God. Notice that. God is not withholding anything from us. You don't have to become like this. You're trying to search out the secret things and figure them out, and that's only for a special class of Christian. God has not withheld anything from us. But we need the work of the Spirit to understand it. We won't arrive at understanding through our personal appropriations of truth, through experiences and feelings and all these things. Paul is making a very important point here. The Holy Spirit does not seek to reveal obscure practices and secret codes, let alone the things that would make some Christians feel superior to others. The Spirit has no part of that. Which is what was happening in first century Corinth, which is why the church was still a part of why the church was such a mess, all done in the name of God, and still happens in churches today. The Holy Spirit seeks to reveal whatever God has freely given for us to know, and He reveals it to anyone who believes. There are not tiers of believers, right, to whom God reveals more secret things the higher up one goes. No, no, no. It's, it's all in Christ, all the knowledge we need, all the wisdom of God, and the Spirit works to reveal Him to us. And any believer can have as much of that as they want. The knowledge of who Christ is and what He has done for us, notice, at the cross, as my Savior. As my Savior. That's how I need to know Him the most as my Savior. God has freely given us all things and gives all of us the same Holy Spirit to understand them as we study His Word and pray for wisdom. 2 Timothy 2, 7. That's what I was quoting earlier. Paul to Timothy, think over what I say. For, why do I think? Because the Lord will give you understanding in everything. How does God do that? Through our thinking, not apart from it, right? Not apart from it, through it. The revelation of God's truth all comes from Scripture, not from the heart. It's such a dangerous thing. This is on my heart. I need to know the condition of your heart before I'm going to take that as the revelation of God for me. Right? We, we use that to validate whatever we want, don't we? No, this is really on my heart. What difference does that make? You see how we, we elevate the self in the church? Everything's just supposed to move out of the way because you really feel strongly about something. Or we really want to do this or that. That's not the way God imparts wisdom. It is not the way God imparts wisdom. I just think that I just feel like 
such things have no authority as sources of wisdom precisely because they're not objective. We don't live in such a precarious state that we're just, we're hoping to catch some experience over here or feeling over there and then we'll know how to proceed. No, beloved, it doesn't, it, it's not that flimsy what Christ has done for us and given to us. Does it sound like we lack anything? Right? I mean, look at what we've been given. What we're lacking is the self-denial to just listen and submit to the Word. So being truly spiritual then requires receiving this revelation from the Spirit and then imparting it or communicating it as the preacher. Remember, he's still in the context of uh, preaching and proclaiming Christ crucified as the wisdom of God. In words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Interpreting, not creating. Interpreting already revealed spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Meaning, those who have submitted to the centrality of Christ in salvation. To those who believe, I need the wisdom of God from God. That's what it means to be spiritual. Right? Not like separated from objective truth. I don't get into all that book stuff. I just, I just feel it. You know, I just kind of go with, I just kind of, I, I, you know, you hear that so much. I just kind of do what I want. I just kind of do what I feel and how I'm led and, oh, okay. Alright. No, being truly spiritual requires receiving this revelation from the Spirit and then imparting it. In words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths, which again aren't these things floating in the air. It's, it's the truth revealed in Christ. Those are spiritual truths, not worldly ones. That's the point he's making to those who are spiritual. To those who believe the wisdom of God in Christ is the key to life in verse 13. That's a, Paul is saying there, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual in verse 13. That's a very nice way to summarize not only Paul's ministry, but every preacher's ministry. And his not-so-subtle knock here on human wisdom by saying that tells us that he's still contrasting human thinking with the wisdom of God at the cross, which is the ultimate spiritual reality. In the cross is where we mine the full wisdom of God, right? Nothing can be truly understood without the cross at the center of our thinking. Explaining spiritual realities with spiritual, spirit-taught words will mean a lot of blank faces from unspiritual people. That is, those whose thinking is not centered on the cross as the full revelation of God's wisdom because they'll have no idea what we're talking about. The cross will be ridiculous as the center and source and substance of all wisdom to those who are not spiritual. Verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The person in the flesh that does not have the Holy Spirit, notice that, does not accept the things of the Spirit and is not able to understand them. That's the world. That's the world. Let that inform 
your evangelism. That's what you're up against. Okay, we're going we're gonna to come back to that. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, he says. We know from 121 that the wisdom of this age will not help us know God. So God is not at the end of the worldly quest for wisdom. We're not going to find him that way by trying to become wise. Self is at the end of the earthly search for wisdom. In other words, Satan is there. Anti-God, anti-Christ. So we get more insight into the ramifications of that here in verse 14, of what the natural person, the person that finds Jesus foolish, the unbeliever, is capable of understanding and doing. The natural person cannot accept that which is truly spiritual, the truth of the wisdom of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. They're literally unable to understand the gospel Because the gospel contains Christ, which is the wisdom of God, which must be spiritually discerned. This is why you can't put much stock in invitations, beloved. You've got to remember that. Those showed up in the church in the middle of the late to 18th or, you know, 19th century at the Second Great Awakening. The church never had such a thing before that. It was created. And we put all this stock in them that, that that's the only way nowadays, mainly, that people can get saved. But look at what the text is saying when you preach the gospel, what is happening. You can't get so down on yourself, in other words, if, if people don't respond to your presentation of the gospel in personal evangelism. What the text is telling you is that the preacher cannot convince people through a good argument or something. To believe the gospel. And if he does, all he's done, according to the context here, is win the person to himself. Not to Christ. People cannot believe the gospel unless God raises one from the dead. They will not, they cannot believe unless God raises them from the dead. He does that through the life-giving word of Christ in the gospel. Again, that's what John 10 and 11 are demonstrating. I know my sheep, I call them and they come out. Oh really? Yes. Let me go to a grave and prove it to you. Lazarus, come out. That's Jesus. That's the gospel. It's a life-giving word that brings to life when God ordains it to bring to life. If he doesn't, they can't hear it. They can't accept it. They can't understand it. So we preach Christ crucified and we don't worry about trying to sway the results. We don't. The wisdom of God does not need the contribution of my wisdom in order to be effective. The gospel is spiritually discerned as truth, not naturally discerned as truth. In other words, God must do a regenerating work and bring the spiritually dead natural person to spiritual life so that we may believe. When we are talking to people of the Spirit, so notice what Paul is assuming here is that in the church you're talking mainly to Christians with the gospel of Christ. 
when we are talking to people of the Spirit, which here and elsewhere in Paul's letters means all believers, not some special class of believer, they will discern things spiritually and not just naturally in verse 15. We have to pray to hear preaching. Right? This, I don't mean it to sound as self-serving as it no doubt does because I'm the preacher. That's, I, that's really not what I'm after. I'm saying we need to learn how to listen spiritually. All of us do. I do. Like I'm, I'm, I still listen to preachers preach. That's the weird thing about being a preacher. You don't really get to hear preaching because you're always doing it. I'm, I'm, I, I, I like to listen to preaching. I need it so badly. But we all need to learn how to listen spiritually, not naturally. We don't default to hearing the Word of God correctly. We don't. And a big problem is that we think we do. We take our natural understanding of something and make it like authoritative. We need to learn to listen spiritually, by the Spirit, to the Word of God. The Word of God will usually go against what is natural. It will usually convict and challenge. That, that's what Paul gets at in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the Word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. That's in the church. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all patience and teaching. Again, you've heard me say that before. 66%, two-thirds of preaching is corrective. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Why? Because we don't know how to listen to the Word of God. We don't know how to hear it. Right? We need to pray when we come together. God, help me hear your word. Help me spiritually interpret these truths. Not naturally. We need this so badly. We, we, we need it so badly. To know how to hear. To know how to listen. I'm, I'm not insulting you like you're dumb and you don't know how to listen. Please hear what I'm saying. I'm talking about myself also. We, we, we need to hear the word spiritually, not naturally. The natural side of us can't accept it and won't accept it and doesn't understand it. And as long as I'm in this body, I'll need a miracle to receive the Word the right way. I can, Talking about the difference between spiritual and natural, right? I, I bet you've heard... Um, Somebody say something like this. Well, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I'm spiritual, but not religious. I think it's fair to say that what one means when they say something like that is, I'm spiritually open. Right? I, I know that there's more to life and the universe than the simple movement of atoms. Right? I don't really believe in the Big Bang or anything like that, but I've also rejected organized religion. I'm pursuing my own path. I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Right? Don't think of that in terms of attendance. Think of it in terms of loyalty. Right? I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. The ironic thing about that in Paul's terms here is that such people are actually religious, not spiritual. They're choosing to trust themselves rather than that which is greater than them and outside of them. They're religious not spiritual. They're creating a system of understanding in their own mind. They're religious, not spiritual. They worship someone or something, even if it's themselves, 
but ultimately because they do not have the Spirit of God, they aren't truly spiritual at all. There is no other spirituality but that which comes from the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit. And therefore have no way of understanding spiritual realities. Without the Holy Spirit, knowing the mind of God is impossible. Which is why Paul quotes Isaiah 40 verse 13 here in verse 16. But because God has given the disciples of Christ the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. We now know things no one before He came knew. They couldn't have known. It's not an insult to them. right? Those that came before Christ, we know things they didn't know because God didn't reveal things as He has in the person and work of Christ when He came in fullness. We know more than could be known before. Without Christ being there doing His work at the cross, we are so limited in our ability to be wise and to understand truth. And now that He's come and lived and died for us, He gives us the Spirit, which means we have His mind. This helps us so much. It means, for one thing, that as Christians, you, you, we don't need to feel inferior to those who claim to be spiritual. Right? You're, you're not missing out because you don't have some understanding of how you just live your life in this where God just shows you every little thing and you always get these little signs and little whispers and you don't please don't buy that all right you I'm not saying that people are lying to you and they tell you they have experiences I'm simply saying don't envy it. it it's actually not what we're instructed to do how we're instructed to live don't feel inferior to those who claim to be more spiritual than you whether we meet them in church or in the world and all its various so-called spirituality. Because we have this Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. Believer, you have that. You are not at a disadvantage. Right? You're not at a disadvantage. Also means, on the flip side, we can't feel superior to people whose practical expressions of Christianity might look different than our own. Right? Think of denominations. Right? There are denominations that have denied the gospel. No question. And have made shipwreck of their faith, no question. Right? They've denied the truth, they deny it in practice, they deny it in their dogma, no question. However, most denominations in America have not done that. They just express their faith differently than we do. But they're each the, the, the orthodox ones are trying to understand the truth as God's revealed it in his word. They're not trying to change it. Right? So we also can't you can't claim that like as Baptists, we've cornered the market on the truth. On some things, we certainly have. Right? I think probably every Orthodox denomination has done that. Somewhere along the line, we're more right than them, and they're more right than us, and all that. It, it, it doesn't really matter. When, when, at, when the goal of the faith is knowing Christ crucified through the Word, everybody's good. The practical expressions of it, right? What your Sunday mornings look like. Right? That, that, I don't think that matters, personally. I don't. I, th- I think in your own expression of it, like, I think here as a Baptist pastor in a Baptist church, it needs to be Baptist, right? So I'm not saying, like, a free-for-all. I'm simply saying, don't feel like because they might, this, this denomination or that might pursue their understanding in a different way than we do means that we're somehow superior or inferior, right? We, we, we are not. 
And he'll, that's, that's really what he's going to go after in chapters 12 through 14, by the way, in talking about the gifts of the Spirit and love and all those things and what it means to be a member of the one body of Christ. And we can be secure in the knowledge that the thoughts of God himself, they're not out of reach to us. And look at what the text says. They've been made known to us in the cross of Christ. That, that's the thing. How We can speculate about unknown things all day and mysterious things all day, right? You know, how did God do this? How, how did the world, you know, how did this happen? How did that happen? How do you reconcile God's sovereignty and free will? And yeah, sure. Okay. Those are, can be very fun conversations, right? But God has made himself known to us mainly his mind, how he thinks in the cross. The more mystery and questioning that you feel, the more you need the cross of Christ in your mind. That text in Colossians 1 is so powerful that at the cross God has reconciled all things to Himself through the cross. Where do I find the reconciliation for my misunderstandings? The cross. Where the Son of God, innocent, pure, righteous, obedient, was murdered by the world according to the will of God. Right? That, that's, that's where all the questions ultimately find their answer. Job didn't have that. He didn't know that that's how it was going to happen. When there isn't Christ, all there is is questions. And there's the world, like his three friends, are always trying to give an answer. Sometimes the answer is this. Most of the time, the answer is this. We look to the cross. And we trust that there, what God did there, reconciles what I can't understand. Now the deeper the pain of what you're facing, the, the more that will feel insufficient as an answer. But there it is. Right? That's why we need the wisdom of God through the cross for us. That's why. Through the Holy Spirit, God has revealed to us His secret and hidden wisdom that is the key to all spiritual knowledge in Christ crucified. The wisdom to understand all Scripture is in Christ crucified. The wisdom to understand the pathway of our lives in this fallen world is Christ crucified. In fact, without Christ crucified for us, as God's plan for this world, and understanding what He's doing in creation, we are incapable of having true wisdom about anything. Christ is what must be known, but more specifically, Christ crucified. Like, to say Jesus is the center of all Scripture is probably not saying enough. And I say it all the time, so I'm talking to myself here. we, We need to say Jesus crucified is the center of all Scripture. It is at the cross that the manifold wisdom of God has been revealed in the crucified Savior the more we understand this beautiful truth that Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification, the more we will understand everything. Or at least I should say the more we will be okay with everything. Let us draw near to Christ for He has promised through His Spirit to dwell in and draw near to us. 